0: To the race to value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value.
1: Race to Value listeners, we have a return guest this week, Debbie Wheelie Powell. She was previously on episode one fifty four, climbing the mountain, reaching new heights for a transformative future. She is back to talk about how do we empower health literacy. By thinking about information as a new social determinant of health, this is a completely new way of thinking about how we approach SDOH in the clinical care environment. It spans precision medicine, personal accountability, behavior change, and system level change that's needed. Debbie is such an incredible leader in healthcare. She's a 30-year healthcare executive veteran. She's in her career focused on delivering affordable and accessible high-quality care. She's out there providing thought leaders leadership, education. Uh, She's a content expert. She's uh, spent a career in developing innovative clinical models of care, population health, implementing telemedicine. Uh, She's currently active in her consulting work. Uh, Definitely someone who we always love to have on the Race to Value. And it's my pleasure to bring you Debbie Wheelie-Powell as she rejoins us this week in the Race to Value. Well, Debbie, welcome back To the race to value. It's been a few months. You were on uh, episode 154. By the way, listeners, you have to check out that episode, Climbing the Mountain, Reaching New Heights for a Transformative Future. You know, Debbie, you talked about everything that I could think of in terms of population health and the value-based care movement, all the great work that you've done in your career And now I have the opportunity to have you back on the show. We're going to be talking about this important piece of thought leadership that that you've written around information as a new social determinant of health. And I guess before we get started on that topic, I just wanted to ask you, you know, what have you been up to since we last talked?
0: Well, Eric, it is good to be with you again. Um, I always enjoy our conversations and I'm sure this uh, will be similar to the past, uh, engaging and uh, you always seem to come super prepared and you're kind to your guests. And so I, I just really appreciate being here today and being able to talk about a topic that I'm really, I care passionately about, but what have I been up to since the last time we talked? I have been teaching at the University of Colorado, a business school on uh, population health. I've been speaking and uh, moderating conferences and writing articles. That's what I've been up to.
1: Well, you know, and we talked last time about this uh, journey that you've had in your, uh, in your life with mountain climbing and you've, you've conquered so many summits. Have you climbed anything recently?
0: So, I did go to Everest Base Camp, which was a trek that I had been doing for a while, and it, get, it continued to get postponed because of COVID. So, in April, I did do that trek, and it was super fun. I'm a, as you mentioned, I like to climb mountains for fun, and it was just so rewarding to be in the Himalayas. They have some of the biggest uh, peaks in the world. And so, I got to trek to base camp and spend a couple nights there. And uh, just be a groupie among all those climbers that, you know, have this pursuit to get to the summit of the highest mountain in the world.
1: Well, I think here at the Race to Value, we're we're groupies, you know, to, for all the work that you've done. And you're such an inspiration, not only in population health, but, you know, how you live your life, your chase and conquering those great summits. And we have quite a summit to overcome and achieving population health. And, you know, for our listeners out there, you know, we're all dealing with this aspect of social determinants of health, you know, the Eighty percent of a person's health and well-being that lies outside of the the healthcare system. You know things like education level, stable housing, access to reliable transportation, food security, and a sense of community where you live, eat, work, pray, and play. And there's a gap in the current list of social determinants of health that uh, you know that yeah, you've written about that's really this influence of information or an information ecosystem on patient behavior and engagement and health outcomes. And, you know, I just have to think, you know, despite us living in this super age where information is seemingly ubiquitous, the majority of citizens are in a bubble when it comes to accessing reliable information that can empower better health outcomes. It's either that or the countervailing influences of society leading to behaviors that lead to poor lifestyle choices that are simply too powerful to overcome and information really is that ultimate enabler of health but you know a patient has to be motivated to seek that information and then take the appropriate actions to improve their health and you know with that in mind i mean you've posited that we should as healthcare leaders you know consider information as another social determinant of health since it can be used to drive positive patient health outcomes and you know a health system that recognizes information as a social determinant understands its pivotal role in shaping individual and community well-being and by addressing information disparities and ensuring equitable access to health related knowledge we can promote those healthier behaviors and reduce inequalities and improve overall population health so debbie i wanted to just as we start our conversation today ask you about you know, how do you define this concept of information as a social determinant of health? And why is it important to include it in our list of things that influence health and well-being outside of the traditional healthcare system?
0: Well, I mean, that is a great question. Um, about a year ago, I was listening to a medical director of Google, uh, their medical lead, and I was um, at NCQA's Quality Talk. And he kind of planted the seed in my mind around information. And I really began to think about, as you mentioned, all of the information that we have out there. And in fact, we have an overabundance of information, and it's not always accessible or reliable or scientifically based, like we saw with COVID. And so I started thinking about, you know, information really only matters if it helps the patient think about motivating them to change his or her behavior. And so this sort of how is information delivered, where we deliver it, and who delivers it is so crucial to empowering our patients to think about taking action differently than they do today. And then I started looking at really the evidence of where we are today. And I mean, you know this, we're like a $4.3 trillion healthcare system. We are the most expensive. We know that. We're, we're 60th in mortality. We spend 12900 a year. It's 18.3% of our GDP. Um, and only 3% is really directed toward wellness. And so when you take a step back from that and you get on the balcony, you start to think, what is not really working? We say we're patient centric, but I don't actually think we're as patient centric as we say we are because the information that we deliver to the patient or the consumer or the member or the subscriber is what really matters. And so I say that if it doesn't motivate the patient to change his or her behavior, then it's not the right information. So, how do we think about the role of the clinician, the role of the delivery system, even the role of the individual, which I think is the most underutilized resource we have in the healthcare system to think differently to take action on their behavior? So there's a lot to really unpack um, with that for health literacy to Again, the role of the clinician and what happens in that twenty-minute appointment, to what the delivery system um, can do to support the clinician who supports the care team, who touches that patient. So we talk a lot about inpatient engagement. Yet, yeah, so here's some things you probably know this, Eric, but you know the CDC reports that between twenty to thirty percent of our patients don't pick up their scripts now there might be you know there's a lot there that might influence one's ability to afford those scripts and find them easy to access and then we also have you know 30 to 40% of our patients are not following up on a referral to the provider and so when you start thinking about non compliance and you start asking the question with the delivery system what is it that we need to know that we don't know to connect the dots to engage patients to find ways in which to get them the care that they need. I also mentioned in my article, think about this, you know, if we're going to really meet the patient where the patient is, then how are we dealing with the patient at 2 a.m. in the morning? Patient calls in to a nurse care line. Are we able to really understand all of the social and personal types of information that if it's a parent might need? single parent, child is sick, you know, first line is to think about going to the ER or urgent care. And to me, some of those activities are system failures to think, how can we meet that patient, that parent differently? So it's not getting into a car and driving to the, you know, the ER, but really finding helpful information, whether it's an ear infection or having an otoscope you know, at home to say, did you look into the child's ear? Is it, you know, red? I'm sort of simplifying some of this stuff. But how do we, whether it is 2 a.m. or 2 p.m. beyond our four walls, how do we engage with patients to meet them where they're at? So they're getting reliable, accessible, understandable information that they can take action versus the action of I'm not sure what to do. And of course, sometimes it's important to get in that car and go to the urgent care or go to the ER. So there's a lot to unpack with information.
1: Debbie, as you're talking, I couldn't help but think about the importance of the provider patient relationship. You know, some of the examples that that you provided, like 20 to 30% of their of patients not picking up their scripts or 30 to 40 percent not following up on referrals or you know accessing the ER urgent care when you know they could go to a primary care appointment to get their issues resolved. And it seems like it it really does come down to knowing who to ask to get the information that you need to make an informed decision. And I can't help but think back about a formative experience that I had in my career. And it was uh, just a trip that I took to Cuba that was was like a healthcare research delegation with a bunch of doctors and administrators. And they had a very high touch community-based healthcare system. Now, granted, it's a third world country, you know, there's, it's not an apples to apples comparison, but the physician was very much treated like, if you've seen The Godfather, the role of Robert Duvall as the the, the, the consigliere, you know, he's the the person that comes to the house for dinner, you know, when your, your child's having some problems and, you know, he's a counselor and the primary care physician actually accompanies the patient to the specialty referral You know, there's a very relational aspect to this and we can't have that in a in a fee-for-service environment where you're, you know, you're cranking through, you know, 20 to 30, 30 minute encounters, but those incentives are going to be realigned over time. And we talked about that on our last podcast, but, but just in terms of creating the relationship, it comes down to, I think, dispersing leadership in a way that maybe physicians haven't been trained in medical school, how to provide care in an interdisciplinary way where you're no longer the cowboy or the autocrat, you know, delivering care. And calling the shots, but you're really part of the quarterback. You're facilitating handoffs. Those handoffs are with other people on the care team that are fully empowered up to their the top of their scope or licensed where, you know, they can communicate effectively in a linguistically appropriate and culturally competent way. You know, they can provide the information, form the relationships. There's a, a technology enablement to that as well, you know, in terms of, you know, how do you engage those patients in a way that maybe spans the the brick and mortar of the the facility to uh, create an ongoing communication and really the delivery system over time evolving you know as we talked about last time with the the payment model structure so yeah i just wanted to to kind of get your thoughts on this aspect of relationships in the healthcare setting and you know just thinking about information as the the ultimate currency of health you know how do we foster trust and in building the relationships where they need to be, where that information exchange can happen more readily.
0: Right, but I think there's you know, the piece about the patient engagement and the patient engaging with the, the care team um, and what that looks like. And there's many ways in which we can improve on that through even the, the user journey, the online user journey in terms of giving access to information that perhaps the patient didn't have before. And now I'll use my own example. So I had ovarian cancer a year ago. I had like the best care within 48 hours of being diagnosed. Got in, had the ectomy, and then great care team. Then they sent me home and they said, we're going to have to, we'll send your lab work to John Hopkins and we need to check on this clear cell. And I go home and I go, clear cell. What's a clear cell? So so I start Googling it. And I think about how that took me down a rabbit hole of not really understanding what that meant for me. And as I reflect back on that, I really think that that, that provider, that clinician, that care team could have helped me go to a trusted, reliable website a URL that helped me understand what a clear cell meant, what stage I might be in. And so there's some really good research out there on online uh, experiences for people. And I'm just going to quote a couple surveys that were done. One was on 2000 Americans. Their first step, just like I did, put in clear cell, or maybe you put it in something like I get a stomach ache you know, I have a stomach ache every day or something, um, but it's not specific enough. And so, having the the care team really help guide me to the right URL or help guide me to um, being more specific around my conditions. Gee, I have abdominal pain every morning or after I eat meals, but the research shows that half of the people um, that go online today end up finding something else about themselves that wasn't that didn't even come to fruition that they had and so there's a lot of great data out there we have you know online videos are a global phenomenon um but I think clinicians are really in a great position to create the engagement to um, direct their patients to, other resources for them that are specific and reliable for to educate that patient on what that might mean for them versus just sending them down sort of a general Google search which may lead them to more concerns around their health that may not even be legitimate. So we have, again, a lot of data. There's 500 hours of content are uploaded to YouTube every minute. And we got 2 billion people are logged in viewers to YouTube every month. So people are out there. But what can the delivery system and the clinical practice do to tailor their patients, their patients needs more specifically so the trust is there to say, oh, I need to turn to my care team. And I think the value based movement, although we may not like that word, the fact that in these arrangements with the government and other purchasers and payers, by understanding our population and being able to reach out to them specifically. We certainly certainly saw data during COVID where we were able to reach out to them because we knew them, we knew them by their names. Create the engagement that is really about meeting them, where they're at, with their conditions, with additional information. So the activity is not I need to hop in my car and go to the ER, or I need to hop in my car and go to the, you know, urgent care. I can call I know it's trusted. It's connected to some devices. I mean, who doesn't know how many hours they slept last night, Eric, right? Who doesn't know their heart rate now? Who doesn't know and monitor their activity? There are wearable devices. You know, look at chat GPT. I'm sure you've looked at it, which is an online resource. Helps a clinical practice say this parent that has hypertension, it's 2 a.m. in the morning to be able to script the narrative of around, I'm a nurse in Baltimore, my patient has hypertension, what are the right words, the right scripting that I can use at that moment to help that patient know what the next steps are that they should take in their care journey. So we've got, again, a lot of data and data being uploaded. How do we decipher what's the right information for our patients? And I think that the clinicians, they undergo years of training they've learned quickly to locate and process valuable information to discern what is the most appropriate decision or plan of care where the average person doesn't have that expertise. I didn't know about clear cell. You didn't know about your piece. So I, I think this really challenging, our notion that we're patient-centric is critical and it's critical with the lens of information given how much information is out there and helping to... You know, improve that appointment, that time that we connect um, with the patient, and how we use other devices to help them understand uh, what might be going on with them or a member of their family.
1: Well, Debbie, I love where you're going with this. I mean, you're taking the practice of medicine which in and of itself is a science and you're merging it with an art form that art being communication and i can't help but think about you know the the your journey that you shared as a patient but also millions of other people that are going through extreme suffering they're going through a formidable time of distress and it's the the worst time to take on a torrent of information and make sense out of it you know and there's there's information overload there's anxiety there's finding veritability from different sources of course you're going to seek you know confirmation bias to to figure something out but you know based on what you're reading which may you know take you down a rabbit hole there's all this complexity of information it's lacking context you know to your point there's definitely a way to use technology and through patient engagement the, the, there's there's generative ai that you talked about with chat gpt and how that can be assimilated into the clinical environment but you know i i, I also think about just the the artful approach to creating a, an information exchange that really honors the patient and what they're going through, and curating that information in a way that can be encoded and and received in a way to really effectuate change. So, I, I just wanted to see your additional thoughts just on how does the the system evolve along with the the payment incentives that create that patient centricity to also re-engineer the way it conveys information where patients can actually make those informed and evidence-based decisions that can really drive appropriate health outcomes.
0: Yeah, I think that is really an important consideration as we think about transforming the delivery system. How do we realign the payment system where money flows to coaching Debbie on something, coaching that patient on hypertension, you know, today it rewards the meds, it rewards the surgery, it rewards the office visit, and maybe the counseling that occurs in that fee-for-service environment. I do think, and I mentioned this briefly, I think the value-based care movement and the contracts we hold allow us to reinvest by knowing the population by tracking the utilization and use rates, and those with chronic conditions, as we um, reward ourselves for Im- improvement in use rates and making healthcare more affordable and in closing gaps in care, we can use those earnings to reinvest in other modes of communication, like AI, like building out care teams, like even uh, what I had mentioned in the article, the prosci change management tool. We need a change management tool really at the delivery system level to engage the patient. Being in that former role of chief population health officer at Essentia in the Midwest, you know, we had a lot of patients with chronic conditions. We just look at um, our diabetes rates today of over 40 million people having diabetes, type two diabetes, and another million and a half coming into that uh, chronic population annually. When we touch that patient, engage that patient. And I love hearing the story about CVS and how many times they have these, you know, connections to patients just through filling filling the scripts. How do we touch these patients with a thoughtful change management approach? And ProSci has the ADCAR model. And we began to use that with our clinicians and administrators, even as we were talking about transforming the clinical practice. And that ADCAR model from awareness, I'm aware that I have diabetes, I have um The desire to try to improve my blood pressure, to control my diet, to maybe move a little bit more, the awareness, the desire, the knowledge. I've got the knowledge of what this means. I understand with hypertension and having been a single parent with two kids, working two jobs, I have kind of the knowledge of what this all means. And then I have the ability and the reinforcement to make these changes in a way that when you integrate that change management with a chronic condition and with a care team that has different ways in which to communicate to being led by a strong clinical care team um, that understands the changing behaviors, I think it can be a bit easier. It can be a bit more attractive and a bit more satisfying for the patient to go through this process and actually see some results. I think that's one thing to really think about. I think the other thing that a delivery system or even the the pop health teams should think about is really creating a patient advisory council made up of patients in their population or from agencies across different pair types that helps them think about how is the information that that I receive as a patient from this system, from this clinician, how does it work? Does it work? What's the connectivity? What's the information? How is it given to me to help broaden the perspective of the, the the delivery system to really think that we could do differently than what we do today? Because again, you know, even to the hypertension piece, we have 122 million people that have high blood pressure in this country. We have, a big mountain to climb when it comes to chronic conditions and what we're doing today is not working. So how do we use the online world? How do we use our care teams? How do we take the earnings from value-based care and reinvest it in ways that actually matter to the patient? Because again, if it doesn't motivate the patient to change his or her behavior, then it's not the right information.
1: Well, Debbie, I love where you're going with system-level change, everything from a patient-centered care delivery redesign, value-based care, the pro ad ADCAR model. I'm interested in how that merges with the change that needs to happen at the individual level. I mean, what we're talking about here is really about changing the neural pathways in the brain that drive habit formation and the way we perceive things. I mean, that's the the concept of neuroplasticity where, you know, a patient literally has to rewire their brain. They have to consciously create change in their own lives by reorganizing information, you know, things that they've, you know, taken at face value for their whole life, they have to assimilate that information and encode it in a way that can be ultimately changed deeply ingrained behavior at a human level. And there's a reason why, you know, there's that saying, you know, you can't teach an old dog new new tricks. I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, we've seen evidence and research that you can reverse chronic disease. Humans can change behavior behavior. But that behavior change is so difficult. You know, I think about you climbing the mountain, it's a process and there's there's pain points along the way, but you somehow have to recalibrate the lens to which you internalize achievement or a goal. You can't just reach the summit in one day on your first attempt. There's progressive and incremental steps along the way. You know, you have to have some goal setting, you have to accumulate those wins over time and create that that snowball effect that can create the glide path to long standing sustainable change. That can reverse or ameliorate some of the the comorbidities and the overutilization associated with chronic disease. And you know, this is especially challenging, I think, in these low-income communities. I mean, we're talking about where you have a proliferation of chronic disease where, you know, if we're looking at the traditional social determinants of health, I mean, these people might not have access to stable, reliable housing, you know, they might not have a grocery store with access to healthy food you know, there aren't facilities for mental health and wellness that might not exist or, you know, they're certainly not financially accessible. And when you have a treatment plan with underserved populations, it's it's so challenging to achieve that compliance, especially in the old model or the current model, I guess, of healthcare where it's real fragmented. But assuming all that coalesces, you know, together towards a population health model, I'd love to get your perspective on where do we go with behavior change and patient activation in this new era of information sharing, especially for those in underserved populations? How can we best reach them where they are in the communities to catalyze the change that's needed to create a better healthcare system and ultimately population health in the long run?
0: I mean, that is such a great question. Do we have two days? <laughs> so the role of the individual is what you asked about first. I do think That the role of the individual is really important. And um, I was leading a panel discussion at the National Association of ACOs in October, and three of the panelists were physicians, and one was the uh, medical lead from Google, and another one was a EVP for a large health system on the East Coast, and another physician from another system. And I asked the question: what is the role of the individual? And it varied from From the health system side, all the complexities that you raised around social determinants and poverty and education and zip code, that maybe the role of the individual didn't have a role, that we needed to really figure out how to meet them where they're at. And that perspective varied from you're born into adverse conditions, we understand that, but you're still accountable for your health. You still, at the end of the day, are accountable for your health. And so, when you look at what the individual can do, it really is about, you know, understanding where they're at and being supported, whether it's by family or churches or their community or their health system. It's really being supported and having access to really understand what that means. So, just think about this. We have, as I mentioned, 40 million people with type two diabetes. Every year we've got another hundred million that are pre-diabetes. And most people don't even know they're pre-diabetes. They don't know that their A1C is at a seven, eight, or nine. They're just on the cusp. And so we know that is preventable. So how do we think about that from a system perspective? How do we think about that from an individual perspective? You know, I think at the individual level, can't solve all the issues, nor that's the intent. It is to sort of make people think about, are we really being patient-centric? Are people really being accountable? And so what I am focusing in on are those that have certain conditions that we know about, that we give them access to better information, that we use tools that perhaps we have not used before in hopes that we can prevent certain chronic conditions from occurring or at least allowing them and helping them to manage those chronic conditions in in an environment where we are screening for social needs and we are working with our community-based partners. So there's an integration of social needs along with the care plan to give that patient a bit more hope than what they had to today. I mean, those that climb mountains and maybe work out at the gym, you know, they're using all those wearable devices and they're tracking um information and they're thinking about lifespan. And there's a new book out now called How to Live, and maybe you've heard about it from Dr. Pete Adia. Um, that's about life and longevity and about lifespan and about the you know ability to really understand the importance of sleep, the importance of uh exercise and diet. And so who becomes the trusted person for that person living in a zip code that has all these complications? I'm not sure I have all the answers, but I do think being on the delivery system side for 30 years, we can do it a lot better than what we have been doing. And we certainly have the ability to redirect resources in a way that that supports the clinical care team. And has an opportunity to really meet that patient very differently when where they are. Because today at 2 a.m., they're going to the urgent care. They're going to the ER. So I think we have a lot of opportunity to just focus on the population that we know uh, and try to improve where they're at with information. So you look at whole, all the health literacy. I mean, the whole health literacy you know, is a public health problem, and it's prevalent um, more than we are even aware of. And you think about a time when you are a friend, you know, you receive sort of bad health news, like we talked about. The statistics around health literacy is sort of dynamic and nearly nine out of 10 adults will have difficulties with health literacy when they are stressed and trying to access information. And half of those adults have limited health literacy. And so there's guidelines out there that all materials for patients should be done at the fifth grade level. So you ask yourself, when you look at the information from a clinical perspective, not from a marketing and communications department, but just from population health and how we take care of a population, are the materials you know, understandable, readable, actionable, and trustworthy. And I think we've got a lot of opportunity really within health literacy because without that, we're not necessarily reaching those populations that we should. And we're having, you know, worse health outcomes as a result of beneficiaries not getting the right information. And United Healthcare just had done a study recently where. They estimated that nearly $25 billion could be saved if all Medicare beneficiaries had adequate health literacy skills. So there's an opportunity right there.
1: Well, Debbie, you know, I as I think about this, the importance of health literacy, the most powerful environment for that information to be delivered to the patient is in the primary care setting. And I can't help but think about the way that patients uh, currently consume the healthcare system, it's almost like you don't perform uh, routine maintenance on your vehicle. Uh, you don't do the necessary oil changes and and then your, your car breaks down and you take it to the mechanic. And that's kind of what we do in American healthcare often as patients. You know, we wait until we have an exacerbation of chronic disease. We rush to the specialist or the hospital and ED uh, to get care. And we're not really... Engaging, you know, our primary care providers uh, the way that we should, and I know there's a multitude of different variables that play into that in terms of reimbursement and the the shortage of primary care providers. But there's also ch- this debate right now. Uh, I'm sure you've you've seen the in the news, uh, you know, over the last year, the there was a federal judge in Texas that. Struck down a provision of Obamacare that uh, seemingly could prevent 151 million people from losing access to free preventative services such as mental health and guidance on weight loss and you know getting the screenings that people need uh you know and I'm not going to ask you to comment on that but I'm just thinking in terms of the emphasis of primary care as the the arbiter and the the vehicle to which we deliver information to those communities and form those partnerships with the churches and CBOs and the patients the households themselves like how do we Somehow, maybe change the thinking, you know, of the patient in terms of having that level of accountability to proactively seek primary care before they ultimately have a an explosive healthcare crisis.
0: Right. I mean, I think this gets back to education and information. Right. Where are they getting the information today, and where are they getting their information today when it comes to their health? So, I think there's a multi approach to information and improving on that information for them. I do think that, and and we didn't have this at Essentia, you know, I'm not sure how many systems do, but think about how helpful it would be if you truly had a patient advisory council and you had members and it was a diverse in race and ethnicity and payer type, and you educated them about the use of telehealth and maybe the importance of annual wellness visits and you talked about my chart or the patient portal design or you talked about the importance of prescription refill reminders helping i think it's you know anything we do we have to start off small to really understand the problem we're trying to solve in the communities and every community is different so tapping into the cbo's and communities they're different and i think i think as much as we need to do that work and engage people to say is this motivating us or not we've got to learn course correct and transform i think the other thing that we don't talk enough about and that's really the role of the public health system and you know in addressing ongoing and future healthcare issues and crises and equity and and earning trust. We've got the 10th Amendment, right? We've got the 10th Amendment of the Constitution that delegates public health powers to the states. What's the role of, and and not to divert it from the health system, because we all have pieces that are important to us because we're accountable for something. And I'm talking about improving on where we are today. But what is the role in creating a building on a public health system that really does address these you know issues and works in the communities through the health departments i mean we saw a bit of that with covid and i'm not sure we're any more prepared as a country to deal with the next pandemic i don't think we've got the right structure i don't think we have the right funding i don't i think there's just too many silos to figure out how to engage what is the role of the public health system when it comes to social needs social determinants information and coordinating that across agencies within a community community where a health system and a population of of people individuals citizens need to be served
1: well debbie you bring up some great points and you know i was thinking about this responsibility for information in the context of the healthcare environment and we we've talked about providers and the delivery system we've talked about the individual patients but there's also I think this role of government and you know certainly in creating these patient-centered models there's a lot of focus on value-based payment you know how do we reduce healthcare costs and improve quality of life have better outcomes reduce disparities but there's also this aspect of information. And as I was thinking about it, as you were talking, you know, this flow of information that can empower personal health and well-being, it has a cascading effect that has its intergenerational in terms of the impact it has on families. It can build social cohesion and stability. It can uh, create long-term sustainability for our country. It helps us be more globally competitive in a marketplace as a country. There's a a dividend that's paid, you know, by a, a healthy well-educated population that takes accountability for their health. You know, just curious as to where you think we could have CMS or CMMI look at beneficiary engagement, and and maybe this comes with the patient-centered types of models that you're describing, but, you know, how do we become better equipped? to face the challenges and opportunities of the modern world by unleashing and empowering patients with information, knowing that the government is really driving a lot of what happens in our healthcare delivery environment.
0: Yeah, that's another great perspective on this. What is the role of government? And I've been a free market gal, but I look at what John Bloom and Liz Fowler and Mima Shashami are doing at the uh, CMS level. And they recognize they control 160 million lives in this country with Medicare, Medicaid, the duals, and the individual market. And there's a lot of discussion around multi-payer alignment. There's a lot of discussion around administrative simplification and looking at how many quality metrics in these different plans do we have. They spend a lot of time, and I was in Orlando last week at NCQA's conference in the week before, or two weeks before at NACO's, and listening to them talk. And they have been on tour looking at the 10 you know regional offices across the country meeting with ACOs, and ACOs represent about 13 million lives. The MA plans represent, obviously, about half of the 65 million Um, 30 million that are part of the Medicare uh, population today. And I think that they're seeing and learning more about underserved areas. So you talk about information, just hard to reach underserved populations and what their role is. Some of the things that they talk about are just the, the pressures of information that the Cures Act was designed where clinicians that w- would receive information from the hospital and discharge information about Debbie and getting that information back to the primary care physician so the coordination of care can occur. And we know, we know that coordinated care is better care and less costly care because you don't have to duplicate a lot of those services. And so, now they talked about San Francisco, Puerto Rico, Alaska, Kansas City, difficulty in getting access to services and patients with ESRD, you know, having the highest mortalities and the physicians and telehealth, and they were touching on all of these pieces that create accountabilities for hard to reach populations that address workforce, that talk about realignment of payment so providers can be paid more in underserved areas because the services are not at the level that you might find in an urban area. And oh, by the way, half of this country is in an urban setting. So I think they have their pulse on what's happening in the field. And they also have their ability to say, we represent a lot of lives and we're here to save the Medicare trust fund. This is not about an ROI and shareholder return. It's the Medicare trust fund. It's state budgets. And I think they're looking at ways to simplify things for the providers, realign payment, and the focus on equity that you can't talk about quality if you're not talking about equity. Um, And so I think they're committed to transformation. What does that mean for information? I think that they're not going to tell their 450 ACOs what to do. They're going to highlight the issues and know that that transformation happens in those clinical settings, but they're going to support the system to improve care for their beneficiaries. And they're they're consistent about that. And so I do think that they are uniquely positioned to take this federal framework, work at the state level, work at the federal level. And make kind of the changes to simplify things for us and to identify those areas where providers are still not being accountable for giving information to the right primary care level so care can be better coordinated. I think we're going to see more from CMS is sort of the bottom line that I'm speaking to Eric.
1: Well Debbie I definitely agree and share in the optimism there. You know we talked about earlier just the redesign of the clinical environment. The clinicians have to adapt themselves, they have to train their staff, they have to engage on this new concept of building re- patient-centered relationships and building health literacy. You know we had there's a tech enablement component to it, you know looking at AI and chat tools there Obviously, is a culturally appropriate and inclusive aspect of health literacy that comes about through culturally competent care, which improves health equity. And earlier, you referenced a powerful model for change management called the Pro-C ADCAR model. I, I must be honest, I don't know a lot about it. I know the acronym, Awareness, Desire, Knowledge, Ability, Reinforcement. It's about changing patient behaviors and requiring that individual change. But, you know, I just wanted to ask you if you could maybe talk a little bit about that model and how our listeners might be able to incorporate that and in what they do.
0: Yeah, so just go to ProSci, P-R-O-S-C-I, and ADKAR is an acronym, A-D-K-A-R, It's a powerful model for change management. And I think when it's applied in healthcare, we can see results that get to the individual level. So when we use that at Essentia, we actually started with the clinicians. The whole concept of why value-based care, why being a high-performing clinician is important. And we went through many conversations with our clinicians around what it means to be a high-value, high-performing clinician. And we did things, so it was awareness of what what is an ACO, what is value-based care, what does it mean to deliver high-value care, which means what does it mean to deliver wasteful care? Unnecessary surgeries, surgeries on people with BMI over 45, doing additional tests and doing additional imaging that's unnecessary. And we got to the level with the clinician that said, I got this order for lab. If I do this procedure, this lab procedure, will I have any more information than I have today? And if it doesn't give me any more incremental information, then I shouldn't do it. So it was the awareness of what that meant and then creating the desire for the clinician to stop the process to say, send this procedure back to the primary. We don't need to do this lab work. We don't need to do this, you know, MRI, CT, whatever it might be, which led to a lot of conversations, Eric, where the doctors said, well, but if we don't do this surgery, then they're just going to go down the street and get their surgery, their knee surgery done there. And we said, you know, that's Okay because to be a high-performing physician, this is what we stand for. These are the clinical protocols. This is the underbelly of how we govern the clinical practice. So we have to let patients go that that we would say no to in terms of clinical guidelines. So the ADCAR model started with our clinicians getting them thinking about transformation. And what I'm suggesting is we take that to the care team and we think through what It matters to the patient, the awareness they have around hypertension, the desire that they have to change or not change. Maybe they're just way too busy to even think about a second blood pressure. And then do they have the right knowledge to understand, wow, I might not be here in two years for my kids if, in fact, I don't take care of this issue. And then really supporting them that they have the ability, they're in the right environment to make that change, and it gets reinforced through the care team. So I'm talking about bringing that change management model down to the level where it's patient-centric and really creating that motivation, that desire to say, I want to be here for my kids. And um, yeah, I know that I've got other issues, but those issues, I'm going to partner and trust that the system that I'm in, that I'm impaneled to, is going to help me work through these issues. It's an iterative care process.
1: Well, Debbie, I've really enjoyed our conversation today, and I have one more question for you, and it's more about just the future state of all this. Assuming we reach this idealized scenario where there's a perfect convergence of value-based payment, aligned incentives, patient-centered care delivery – the enablement of technology and then personal accountability and behavior, effectuating behavior change at an individual level. There's um, a lot of people talking about the promise of, of precision medicine as we learn more about human social genomics and being able to incorporate technology and in genomics and understanding, you know, persons' behaviors and environment and creating really sophisticated models that can focus on preventing disease before it starts. And, you know, it's like precision health at that individual level that really complements the community health that's conducted at the group level. And, you know, I know this is kind of out there in in terms of a lot of what groups are doing now, but I'd love to get your take on just maybe some of your thoughts in terms of, you know, how we might be able to incorporate more precision medicine in terms of delivering individual based information to really guide improved health outcomes in the future.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I'm talking about. I think what I'm talking about, you know, the delivery system and the clinician, it is more intentionality, is more focused. It's bringing all tools and knowledge and care and humanity and respect and trust to the individual because we know their names in the value-based movement, and the ACO movement. We know the names of the 30,000 members that we're privileged to serve. Are we treating them only at the highest acuity level with chronic care, or are we addressing them around wellness? I mean, again, it's a sick care system. So what's the roadmap? I guess, Eric, let's talk about the roadmap on a future podcast or with others. What do we have to do to make wellness part of this roadmap? And how long does that take for us to move from really wellness and prevention versus chronic conditions, and managing the diseases. I think that's what I'm trying to say. I'm not talking about genome and genes, and and I think that piece is important, but I think there's a lot more we can do that we're not focused on because we've not really aligned the work that's truly patient-centric.
1: I love where you're going with this, Debbie, and it's just always a a pleasure to be with you. And do you have any parting thoughts, you know, for our listeners out there in terms of some takeaways that they can implement today to create this improved information sharing environment to improve individual health outcomes?
0: Well, I mean, I, I think that if you are in a health system today and you have these contracts where you know your patients, think through that population that you're serving, what do you know about them today? And when you think about how you do your outreach and communicate, I mean, you think about the rising risk in those with chronic conditions or those that are expensive. And, you know, we typically put them in four quadrants in terms of understanding the population are your communication ways in which you communicate and connect your, patients, are they effective? Are you using text versus email? Because no one's paying attention to email. How are you engaging them in a way that they trust you? What are you doing with tools and resources? And how are you supporting the online patient journey, not the user journey, but the patient journey, that once they're diagnosed with something, once they have the surgery, what's the transition to the next level of care? Those are significant fragmented gaps. We know discharge planning Basically we get like a D to an F on discharge planning. I mean, we do well when you're in the system, but when we discharge you, discharge you to home to skilled nursing or back to the clinical practice, those transitions, really understanding them. And then I think you can put together a patient advisory council, a patient advisory team made up of who your population is that you're serving and the community and really have somebody give you a third view of, is what you're doing effective? Is it working? And is it moving the needle? We need to really be, again, the patient needs to be top. And we can't, and sometimes it's difficult because systems have financial issues. And then we, we cut back on resources. We cut back on what we do. So I think investing and engaging in change management tools and life's Style changes takes a lot of effort on behalf of the clinician, the patient, and the health system. But the impact of having information that is better, that accessible, that's credible, scientifically based, culturally appropriate, and motivates change can have a profound impact on one's health. And that's what I'm talking about. And I think those there's some easy steps for people to think through when it comes to information and is it motivating patients? Ask them.
1: Well, there's a lot of great information here. No pun intended. You know, This has been a, <laughs> an incredible conversation, Debbie. It's always a pleasure being with you. And I, I wanted to thank you again for joining us this week on the Race to Value.
0: Yeah, thanks. It's so good to be with you, Eric. And we'll talk soon.
1: I uh, look forward to it. Thanks again.